Welcome to Wine with HR. I'm Jules. Hey there, I'm Trish. Lawyers turned HR professionals. Through our company, Monarch Endeavors, we guide employers through their oh shit moments with their employees. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most common (laughs) and commonly frustrating HR problems while enjoying our favorite adult beverage, wine. So sit back, grab a glass if you choose, and join us as we think about and drink about all things HR. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of Wine with HR. We're so glad you've joined us or are just finding us for the first time. There have been a lot of legal developments in the labor and employment world over the last few months, so we thought it would be helpful to provide a legal update over the next two episodes. And we have to break it up into two episodes because legal stuff always takes forever to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Truth. (laughs) So today we're going to focus on recent Supreme Court decisions and how those decisions could potentially impact your obligations as an employer. And so probably just from that intro, you know we're definitely going to need some wine for this episode. So, Oh, yeah. I have the bottle next to me. (laughs) So, Trisha, what's in the bottle? What you drinking? I actually went with another standby. You know, we talk about how much we travel. And usually, um, unlike you, I don't go to the exotic places. (laughs) But (laughs) I love going to any hotel and finding decoy. It's just so consistent. It's a great Chardonnay. I mean, it's a, it's a consistent wine no matter what, right? And uh, so that's what I am drinking today. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So you are going to be shocked by my wine choice. Really? Because I am drinking a boxed wine. <gasps> I'm so, that gave me goosebumps. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, listeners probably know by now I'm a little bit of a wine snob, but I decided I had to give it a whirl because I, as much as it sounds like I drink wine all the time, I really don't. And sometimes I like to just have a glass, but if I open a bottle and I don't drink it again, then the bottle goes bad and I feel horrible about that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I tried a French box wine called La Vieille Ferme, which means the old farmhouse. And it is a rosé and it is actually quite nice. Oh, it's actually quite nice. It's very mild. It's very drinkable. Perfect summer easy. Yeah, perfect summer easy. And both uh, Trisha and I, for our listeners out there, are drinking out of our fancy schmancy new wine with HR wine glasses. <laughs> I totally want to be like, see, but yeah, I know. can't see. <laughs> no, they are plastic and perfect for summer or clumsy people such as ourselves. Yes. Uh, and then I have some spare in a lovely wine glass that Trisha got for me and our third one of the group because we spent the last weekend on the lake. So she got us three ladies on the lake tumblers, wine tumblers. And so I have a little extra in there because again, this episode's going to be kind of weighty. Thought I might need it. So definitely going (laughs) to need it. (laughs) Okay. So with that, let's go to the WHINE, which as we've already alluded to is the Supreme Court cases. Trish, you want to give a quick overview of which ones we'll be talking about? 
Sure. So there are a total of seven that we are looking at today. We're going to look at the Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. Um, we're going to just give you the skinny. This one, think affirmative action. Uh, Groff v. DeJoy, that one is about religious accommodations. 303 Creative versus, is it Alanis or Alenis? Yeah. Anyway. Either. Yeah. I apologize <laughs> to the person. <laughs> Freedom of religion is the topic of that one. Glacier Northwest versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters. So in that one, we're going to be talking about strikes in case the Teamsters didn't give it away. <laughs> Coinbase versus Bielski. Uh, we're talking about arbitration, mandatory arbitration. Helix Energy Solutions versus Hewitt. We're going to be looking into overtime pay and some of our FLSA exempts rules. And then our last one would be Mallory versus Norfolk Southern. Uh, in this one, we're going to be talking about personal jurisdiction. I know everyone's riveted at this point. <laughs> I know, but they are important. Yes. And here's why. Because even though some of these cases don't deal directly with employers or employment, they do have potential ramifications for employers. Now, many of the cases are directly tied to employers, but there are a few that aren't. But we anticipate that parties will attempt to expand these decisions to the employment world. And so um, these decisions kind of give us guideposts and how the Supreme Court is interpreting legal theories and what they might do in certain situations. So again, we'll get all into all of that uh, a little bit more later, uh, but that's one of the reasons why it's important that employers, HR professionals, and managers are all up to speed on what these decisions really mean. Julie, I want to build on your point on that. Employers and HR professionals, right? Mm -hmm. They need to continuously follow these court decisions as well as any guidance that the regulatory agencies offer us on how best to handle these potential situations. Um, if you want to ensure compliance and manage your potential risk for your company, then you're going to take our advice and follow along. <laughs> um, just as an example, the Harvard case, and again, we'll talk about that here shortly, but it reminds us that we as employers always need to be prepared to defend our employment decisions. Um, and you'll see as we get into that one, we're not saying that we want to, you to abandon particular programs, especially those that are designed to foster more inclusive hiring practice or advance your culture and values. But there has been a lot of uncertainty created, and we need to understand those potential impacts like Julie was mentioning. So I think we should get into it, Jules. Absolutely. Tell us about your first case that you're discussing, Trish. Okay. So since I started mentioning the students for fair admissions versus the president and fellows of Harvard, uh, that's the one I, I think we should start with. The key here for everyone is that when we're talking about this case, you need to understand that this was the college admissions process. This is what was at issue at this case, not employers or the colleges when they are the employers. But like Julie said, we're expecting people to take this and kind of run with it. So let me give you kind of the skinny. What we're dealing with here is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. 
and the 14th Amendment, right? So the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That is what the court was actually discussing. And just a quick reminder, that Equal Protection Clause prohibits states from denying any person equal protection under the law. And that does extend to public colleges and universities and because Title VI extends those same protections to an institution that receives financial assistance from the government. That's how we get Harvard involved and all the other private schools. So I wanted to to explain that to everyone because a lot of people were thinking that this did involve the Civil Rights Act and it didn't. That is what, again, keeps us as employers from discriminating based on our protected characteristics. So most of you are probably going, then why the heck are we talking about this case, you two? (laughs) Like what? And again, it's that belief that the ramifications from this case could negatively impact our diversity, inclusion programs. And and so that's what we want to talk about it. Can we or will we be able to hire a diverse workforce in the future? And that's where we're going. Now, for those of you who are like, oh, that might be kind of a jump. It isn't because already there were 13 attorneys general from various states that have even said, hey, by the way, you may have potential risks if you continue your DE&I programs. On the flip side of that, we had 21 attorneys general say, hey, you know what? We're going to send you the exact opposite message and we want you to know that you have no need to worry and We definitely need these programs and they are legal. So that's where our discussion goes. So what are employers supposed to do with all of that, Trish? (laughs) Great question, I guess. We need to think about our DE&I programs, right? We want to talk about which ones that may be an issue or which ones are still good or we don't have to worry about, I should say. So those who have stated diversity goals, let's start there. We want to be cautious on those. Always be prepared, again, as I already said, to defend your decision. Why was this person the best candidate? Did you use inclusive hiring practices? And if so, yay, that's wonderful. (laughs) But you can't focus on race or any other protected characteristic during that process. Trish, I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? I just, for people who may not know, when you say a stated diversity goal, you mean like we want to hire 7% minorities or we want to hire 10% disabled workers or something like that, right? That's exactly what we mean. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. I appreciate that. You're (laughs) welcome. So if you have these and you find yourself in a situation where you're like, oh my gosh, is can I continue? Again, just remember, be prepared to defend your decision. What is it that you are looking at, right? One of the best ways to continue using your stated diversity goal without running afoul of this most recent um, decision is to think about how you are going to do that recruiting. Instead of saying, we're gonna focus on X, Focus on where you're going to do the recruiting. Focus on expanding your schools. Focus on making sure your current employees feel like they are valued and that they're included and that they truly belong. 
So that's, that's where I would want to go with that one. When it comes to training programs, let's go to that one next. Full steam ahead, no problems here at all. These programs are designed to help all of your employees grow both personally and professionally and really do serve as an important educational tool. So for those that are already part of your team, this doesn't impact the hiring process, right? So that's what we want to make sure. Uh, some examples of this training that you can continue, implicit bias training, harassment, diversity, cultural competence, and <laughs> workplace civility. How many times have you heard Julie and I say people have forgotten how to human? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me skip down to another one. Affirmative action. Now, this is what was at issue in the case, right? So people are extremely concerned about this one. And I will say you have to be cautious. Always, again, be prepared to defend your decisions. Can you show that your decisions were based on a need to increase the number of women or people of color to a level that's more representative of those groups overall? If you can do that, you're going to be just fine. For those of you who are federal contractors or subcontractors, you have to, at this point, continue to comply with all affirmative action programs. So don't you worry about that. You are good. And then, Jules, I want to do just one more real quick so people understand. Um, mentoring programs or other programs that are designed to support a particular group they may face some challenges due to this decision. Anytime we focus on or prioritize or give money to one group over another, there could be a legal challenge. So given this new rule, I would say make resources available to all and then focus on factors beyond race and sex, right? Focus on education, new experiences, even interests. I think that's all great advice. And we probably should have put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode, but I'll do it now. We are not <laughs> providing legal advice. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yes. <laughs> Please add that. <laughs> we are just sharing our opinions that we hope will be helpful as you navigate this new sort of landscape that the Supreme Court is paving. So again, this is not legal advice. There's no attorney-client <laughs> privilege. There's no attorney-client relationship. Just had to get that out there. Okay. So. Now that we got that out of the way, <laughs> uh, you could take the lawyer out of the girl, but you can't take the girl out of the lawyer. Whatever. That maybe didn't make sense. It's all good. Okay. So Close enough. I'm going to completely switch topics, and I'm going to talk about uh, another case called Mallory v. Norfolk Southern Railway Company. This one is directed at personal jurisdiction, which you may be like, what the heck does that mean? But that is when a court has jurisdiction over you as a person, an individual, or in this particular case, a corporation. Typically, in order for somebody to file a case in a particular state or a particular venue, as it's often referred to, there has to be a number of factors, like the um, incident had to happen there, or there have to be a lot of contacts, or the defendant has to have a presence there, which is typically their headquarters or where they're incorporated. In the Mallory v. Norfolk Southern Railway case, this one was a little bit weird. It's a, it involves an employee who worked for Norfolk Southern, 
uh, for many, many years. And he did all of his work for them in Ohio and Virginia. After he retired, he moved to Pennsylvania for a short period of time. He then moved back to Virginia. After he had moved back to Virginia, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer that he believes was caused by some of the work he did for Norfolk Southern. They never say why he filed suit in Pennsylvania, but he filed suit in Pennsylvania. So again, he didn't live there at this point. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> I know. He didn't contract the cancer there because he never worked for Norfolk while he lived in Pennsylvania. But for whatever reason, he filed suit in Pennsylvania. It may be because Pennsylvania courts are presumed to be more friendly to these types of cases. Oh. It may be for any number of reasons. We don't know the reason. But for whatever reason, he filed suit in Pennsylvania. And Norfolk Southern said, you don't have jurisdiction over us in Pennsylvania because we're headquartered in Virginia. Uh, we're incorporated in Virginia. He most likely allegedly contracted the cancer in Virginia. Uh, so Pennsylvania isn't the proper venue. And the Supreme Court said, meh, you are registered to do business in Pennsylvania. And when you registered to do business in Pennsylvania, you signed something saying that you agreed to uh, receive service for all claims against you in Pennsylvania. So. Oh, wow. They the case is allowed to go forward. Now, I will admit I was surprised by this case and it did worry me a little bit because I had a similar uh, situation where I had a, a project for a client in New Jersey. And in order to perform that work, I had to register as a business with the state of New Jersey. And we don't do a ton of business in New Jersey, but I'm registered to do business there. So conceivably, Monarch could be sued in New Jersey, even though I only have one right now, one client in New Jersey. So it's a little intimidating for employers. And that's why I wanted to call attention to it, because the thinking before this was that you had to have substantial contacts with the state. So you had to either be typically the test was you had to be headquartered there or incorporated there. And that is not true for this particular case. Now, they did have railroads in Pennsylvania and they did have they did do work in Pennsylvania. So there were some contacts, but it is sort of a, a broadening of personal jurisdiction. And so our point in bringing it up today is just to make you as an HR professional or a manager aware that you may be subject to claims and lawsuits in states that you otherwise would not have typically thought you were. So just uh, kind of an awareness point. There's not much you can do about it at this particular point. <laughs> um, but uh, just being aware that if you have to register to do business with a particular state, usually part of that registration process is agreeing to accept claims in that state uh, of any nature. So it just opens up your liability to other states and other territories. Wow. Yeah. That's a good one to know. Yeah. Julie, do we know if this is going to have an impact like for those who have employees who are remote and work in other states? Does that mean every state that they have a remote employee, they could be sued there? Possibly. Possibly. <sighs> I think there would still be some, like let's say Norfolk Southern had one employee in Alaska 
and they don't have any railroads in Alaska. They're not registered to do business in Alaska. I'm not sure it would go that far. But there are other parts of personal jurisdiction. If the injury happened in Alaska and the employee is employed in Alaska, they absolutely could be sued there. So Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that for us. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Trish, what's your next one? So I'm going to go to uh, a case called Coinbase Inc. versus Bielski. So the essential part for this one is in cases where you have a party that has appealed to a higher court to compel arbitration, um, a stay will be automatic. And for those of you who are like, what the heck is a stay? It's a temporary action by the court that stops a legal proceeding or the litigation from continuing. Uh, So before we get into why this is important, let me give you the facts, because I think the facts in this one really help us understand where we're going. Abraham Bielski filed this class action complaint against Coinbase. Uh, He was alleging violations of the Electric Funds Transfer Act because a scammer actually transferred assets out of his Coinbase account. Oops. So, ouch. Right. It was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Coinbase moved to compel arbitration because they have this uh, arbitration clause in their consumer agreement. When the district court looked at it, they said, nah, we're going to deny this, that agreement. And they called it, quote, unconscionable. Right. (laughs) So Coinbase then appealed and requested the stay of proceedings pending the outcome of their appeal, which ultimately the ninth court denied the ninth district or the ninth circuit. Circuit. rather. Yeah. Sorry, I said that wrong. Ninth circuit. Okay. (laughs) So they denied it. Well, here is why it ended up with the Supreme Court, because it turns out that the circuit courts are actually split on whether these stays should be automatic or not. So the Supreme Court said, yeah, we need to hear this. And they did. So we get this ruling, but it was a 5-4 split decision. And so here's what here's where we are with this then. The court... And again, a 5-4 decision said that the Federal Arbitration Act requires district courts to automatically, automatically stay litigation while the parties appeal whether that claim does need to go to arbitration or not. Their reasoning was that when we're talking about someone who makes an appeal, it divests the current court of control over those aspects of the case that are involved in the appeal. So I know this is getting a little legal for you guys, but I'm trying to just make it as simple as I can. What the court said in this case is that the whole entire appeal is about whether the case belongs in arbitration. So therefore it should be divested and therefore it is an automatic stay. Further, they said to allow those proceedings to continue would mean that all of those benefits of arbitration, you know, usually people think of it as cheaper, less intrusive, like when we're talking about discovery and things like that, and then also more effective. So all of those benefits would be lost. The dissent, though, and I have to talk about what the dissent said, and believe it or not, I actually have it. So I need to read it because it's really impossible for me to summarize. They said this. 
the mandatory general stay rule for interlocutory arbitrary, I can never say this word, (laughs) arbitrability appeals comes out of nowhere. In other words, there's never been a precedent for this. No statute imposes it, nor does any decision of this court. Yet today's majority invents a new stay rule perpetually favoring one class of litigants, defendant sinking arbitration. Those defendants will now receive a stay when, according to the usual equitable analysis, there's no good reason for one. So then they go on to talk about like it's never happened before once again. And then the logic has and here's why I'm sharing it. The logic has significant implications for federal litigation that the majority itself shies away from the Pandora's box it may have opened. (laughs) 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 Right? Because what what they're saying is that other people might be able to use the same idea to frivolously delay their cases as well. Now, the majority did somewhat address that, but we shall see what is going to happen with this. Why we're sharing it today, so you guys understand what the impact is for you, for employers who are seeking enforcement of their arbitration agreements, you will now be entitled to a stay automatically pending your appeal, and you may not even have to face litigation at all. And by the way, this also shows this court's support for businesses and their right to use arbitration as what, as they call it, a cost-effective means to resolve disputes. I will say from my years in litigation that I do understand this decision on some aspect because it's sort of pointless to be fighting over whether or not something has to be arbitrated if the case is moving along in the courts anyway. Right. Because at some point that becomes moot, right? Right. Like right. if the court if if the case has already moved along to trial or you've gotten through discovery, then arbitration's kind of pointless at that point. So I do understand it from that aspect. I think one of the other things to keep in mind, though, is arbitration provisions, as you just alluded to, are typically included by the party that has more power in the situation. And so oftentimes the person who has on the other end who has signed, the person or entity who has signed that arbitration agreement didn't really have a choice. And now they're kind of stuck. Right. So I get both the dissent and the um, majority's. Oh, good. I was feeling really guilty about that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I was like, this makes total sense to me. But I also do see how it really could open people or the the courts up to a bunch of frivolousness and people saying, oh, we're going to try to do this too. Yeah. From a practical standpoint, it makes sense. But yeah. 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 So. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. Okay, great. So The next one I'm going to talk about is Groff v. DeJoy, Postmaster General. So you guys have probably heard of DeJoy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This was actually a unanimous decision, I believe. I may be wrong there, but I'm pretty sure it was unanimous. So uh, that's rare in today's (laughs) Supreme Court that everybody would agree on this. And I do think that they got it right. But this is all about religious accommodation. So This case had to do with an employee's request for a religious accommodation that he not 
be required to work on Sundays. And um, as Trisha just said in her last case, like sometimes the facts are really important and they illustrate why a particular issue came to be. So I'm going to briefly talk about them. But Groff is the plaintiff. He is an evangelical Christian who believes that Sunday should be devoted to worship and rest. He had worked for the post office since 2012. It had never been an issue because the post office didn't deliver mail on Sundays. In 2013, the post office entered into an agreement with Amazon. <laughs> my favorite. I have a minor yep. addiction. I know, lie. right? Everybody does. I know. Like you hate to use it, but it's so dang convenient. So convenient. Uh, you know. So, so anyway, they entered into an agreement with Amazon to begin uh, delivering Amazon packages on Sundays. Groff asked to be excused from that requirement, and the post office did accommodate him for quite some time. At some point, he was required to deliver packages on Sundays. He refused, and he was, although the post office figured out things to get those packages delivered, he was progressively disciplined for failing to work on Sundays. And so in 2019, he resigned rather than being fired because of his absences. And so that's how we got to where we are. The lower court held that uh, the post office only had to show a de minimis cost to accommodating Groff in order to satisfy the undue hardship standard. So I know there were a whole lot of legal words in that particular sentence, but de minimis means like minimal or negligible. So very, they barely had to show any cost in order to say that this, this presented an undue hardship. Um, the Supreme Court disagreed and said that now courts or uh, companies have to show that an accommodation would result in substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So that's a greater showing. And I think that that's right. I, I think that it needs to be more than de minimis. You know, they have to show that it's really going to impact their business. And one of the things that they said that I think is really important is that a hardship that is attributable to employee animosity to a particular religion, religion in general, or to the very notion of accommodating religious practice cannot be considered an undue hardship. So I think that point is really important. You can't just say, well, our other employees are really mad about this. Right. <laughs> um, or our other employees don't think that this is right or they're not evangelical Christians or they're not Muslim or they're not whatever. Uh, you can't use that as an excuse. It has to actually impact your business. So that's kind of the gist of that case. And later when we get to our helpful tips, I'll discuss some things that I think you can do to set yourself up to make the argument that it is an undue hardship if it is. Uh, so we'll get there in just a few minutes. But Trisha's got one more case or maybe two more cases to talk about. I just about. have one. Okay, you have one and I think I have one. So Oh, okay. So we're doing six. I think. I <laughs> yeah, we're doing, we're doing six. Two. I don't know what oh. the seventh case was, but we decided it wasn't important. So. <laughs> At least or that we didn't have point. time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that's it. Yeah, this is, I, we understand you guys. This is a long one. But yeah. again, these are so incredibly important. So, all right, we are going to get to... The Hewitt case, Helix Energy Solutions versus Hewitt. 
this case revolves around, again, as we said, overtime pay, but specifically whether highly compensated individuals can be eligible for overtime under the FS- FLSA. Wow. Try to Fair say Labor that. Standards Act, for those of you who don't know what that means. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Appreciate <laughs> that. All right. Once again, let me give you the facts and I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can, but I also want to make sure you guys get everything. So Hewitt involved a group of managers who worked on an offshore drilling platform. They were paid on a daily basis and then classified also as highly compensated employees. Hewitt himself, by the way, earned about $963 a day, maybe even a little more, which was, you know, close to like $200,000 a year. Um, But, and here's the key for later, there was no weekly or other minimum salary guarantee. So ultimately, Hewitt then filed this action, collective action, against Helix, alleging that he and the others were improperly classified as exempt from overtime pay. Now, Hewitt said, you're a bona fide executive, dude. We don't have to pay you overtime, right? (laughs) I mean, probably not exactly like that, but something like that. All right. For those of you who don't remember, quick, 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 your executive standard has three parts, right? We're talking the salary basis test, the salary level test, which currently is $684 a week. But as you'll hear later uh, in our next episode, that may be changing. We're still uh, waiting to see when. And then number three, the duties test, which focuses on those employee right responsibilities. So What the court said is, yeah, the other two don't matter for now. We know that he meets those. What we're looking at is the salary basis test. And so the court said there are actually two ways to satisfy this test. And I found this incredibly interesting. Um, All right. The first is the general rule that most of us think about when we think about the executive test, right? This applies to our employees who make less than $100,000 in total compensation. So that includes their salary, their bonuses, their commissions, everything. So that test states an employee's salary is predetermined and fixed and cannot be, and I know you guys all know this language, subject to reduction based on variations in the quality or quantity of work. Now, of course, they still have to meet the other two parts as mentioned above. Um, So just, of course, remember that. Now, here's the part that I thought was really exciting and I had never heard before. So there's this other rule and the rule that's actually at issue in this case, and it relates to the highly compensated employees. Uh, We all know they have a more flexible duty standard, right? They have to customarily or regularly perform an exempt duty for our executives, our administrative or professional employees. So we're all familiar with that part. We also are familiar with the part that they have to make over currently 107,432 annually, 107,432 annually, which includes at least 684 each week paid on a salary basis. This is the entire key to this case, okay? The rule makes sure that the employee will get at least part of their compensation through this weekly or even less frequent, like they were paid, right? If we're thinking uh, about Hewitt, so, or less frequently. Now, they have to receive that predetermined salary Again, in any work week in which they perform work, regardless of quality or quantity, same thing as our general rule. 
All right, I am trying to save y'all from boredom and I'm trying not to get into all of the different provisions that they, if, if you read the case, I'm telling you there's all 602, 601, 604. But it's 604 that I have to discuss, and I'm sorry. But the last provision addressed by the court was this 541.604B, and that changes everything. And I think this is going to impact a lot of you out there. If you have employees whose compensation is computed on an hourly, a daily, or a shift basis, then you are going to have to follow the 604B. And it states that employers who are paid like this will, or who pay their employees like this, will not violate the salary basis requirement or lose the exemption if they guarantee that employee receives the minimum salary level, again, currently 684. And second, that promised amount must be a reasonable relationship to the amount actually earned. So the court said the whole the reason this is so important is because that now that compensation structure we're talking, even if it is on a daily basis or something like that, it actually mimics or looks closer to a true salary where the person can rely on a regular stream of pay. So if you hear people (laughs) referring to the special rule of 604B, that's what they're talking about. Ultimately, Hewitt wins um, because he was not paid that uh, that regular rate that of that 684. So he was not exempt under the FLSA. Hmm. I know, right? So people know your overtime exemptions. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Because that guy <laughs> was probably entitled to a lot of overtime. Oh, can you? Oh, yeah. I think in when I was reading it, I think he was working like 80 and 90 hour weeks or yeah. something like that. So, yeah. wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Well, so I realized the seventh case was the labor strikes. So um, just very, very briefly, that case uh, that deals with labor strikes uh, is actually very good for employers. It says that, don't quote me on this because I don't have my notes in front of me on this one, but <laughs> it says that unions cannot and workers cannot start a strike if they are in the mid, like basically in the middle of a project or an order <gasps> or work. Oh, so they right, can't right. Um, like start it right smack dab in the middle this of it. This is the one where they damage the cement. Yes. The cement trucks, right? Yeah. Oh, this was good. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I believe that whatever the the circumstances were, they had cement trucks that they were um, bringing to pour cement. Obviously, the strike interrupted that. The cement hardened. It caused a lot of damage. And so the court said, you can't do that. You got to wait till it's over. Then you can strike. So that's (laughs) actually a really good one for employers. And that was like a 10 second overview. So. There you Woo-hoo, go. Good job. So the <laughs> the last one I want to talk about is 303 Creative uh, v. Alanis or Alinas or however you say it. Um, you guys have probably heard a lot about this one because this one's pretty controversial because it is about a 303 Creative is a company that designs or wants to design websites. At the time of the filing, she actually has never designed a website and she still hasn't to this date designed a website. What? So, yeah. Um, so this is... People are upset about this one because it seems like it was manufactured to get to the Supreme Court. But whatever, it got there. There were a lot of stipulations on both sides that got it before the court. So there's really not an argument about standing, even though a lot of people have talked about that. 
Uh, standing, for those of you who don't know, just means it's um, it means you have a right to bring something before the court. So we can get rid of all of that. But basically what it says is that if you are engaged in a service that is your creative expression, then you have the right to deny services to particular groups of people or particular people because of their protected class. So in this particular case, 303 Creative is owned by uh, a woman named Laura. Her religion says that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so she filed this suit because Colorado has a law that says if you provide services to the public, you have to provide them to everyone. And she did not want to be forced to make websites for gay marriages. So she wants to do wedding websites, but she doesn't want to do wedding websites for gay individuals. And so she filed this lawsuit to get a ruling that she wouldn't have to do so. And the majority agreed with her. And it's very interesting because the majority never considered public accommodation law, which I do think was an oversight. Their focus was the First Amendment, which is your freedom of speech. And they felt that this infringed on her freedom of speech because she would have to say things she did not agree with if she had to create a website for homosexual individuals. But I think this is another one where the dissent is very, very important because they, the dissent looked at it through the public accommodation lens. And one of my favorite quotes from the dissent is the following. Discrimination is not simply dollars and cents, hamburgers, and movies. It is the humiliation, frustration, and embarrassment that a person must surely feel when he is told that he is unacceptable as a member of the public because of his social identity. When a young Jewish girl and her parents come across a business with a sign out front that says, no dogs or Jews allowed, the fact that another business might serve her family does not redress that stigmatizing injury. Wow, that's powerful. Right? I know. I think that's really powerful because what the majority failed to consider, like one of their arguments was, well, there's, there's tons of other businesses in Colorado that will bake a gay wedding website. And that's not the point. Um, right. And it's not the point that, that gay couples probably would never go to this woman <laughs> you know, right. who doesn't believe in, in what they believe in anyway. The point right. is, if you put yourself out to the public, then you should have to serve all people, including all of our protected classes, equally. And the no. Supreme Court said, no, you don't. Not if it's creative expression. So... I personally do not agree with this particular Nor decision. Do I. <laughs> um, and I think that it is problematic on a lot of fronts, but it is what it is. So if you are in, if you are an employer who provides creative expression as part of your services, you probably have more rights to deny those services to others than you did before. Um, I hope that you will all choose not to do so, but you know. Yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> so those are the those are the cases we gave you the rundown. We have um, some tips for you about what the heck to do with them. So we're going to get into that again. We know we're running long, but we think this is really really important. So hopefully you're bearing with us. And 
Um, I told you I brought my reserve, so maybe you can hear this, but I'm going to pour some more because oh. I'm already through my wine. Oh, I muted. I muted myself uh, when you were talking yeah. and poured some. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Trish, get you right. some, some tips. All right. Here are my tips for Harvard. I have to say it again. Be prepared to defend all employment decisions. Also, for those who are committed to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging efforts, but are worried about the fallout, check out the SHRM article that just came out not that long ago, The Meaning of Woke by Matt Gonzalez. Um, It's an absolutely fantastic article. He shares some tips from Paul Wolf that include uh, things like being authentic, transparent, and involving your employees in your effort. I had a whole discussion to explain to you guys what woke is and how it started, but obviously we didn't have enough time. But I have to tell you, uh, do you know that the term was used as early as uh, Abraham Lincoln's campaign? <laughs> Bonkers. Jules, I will tell yeah. you about it later. <laughs> With Coinbase, uh, just here is your little tip. Employers that are seeking to enforce their arbitration agreements, you're okay because <laughs> you will now be entitled to a stay automatically pending appeal. And then, as I said before, you may not even have to face litigation. But please, please, please watch this opinion to see if it holds up over time or if it does end up opening Pandora's box as the dissent suggested. And then my last one um, obviously was Hewitt. So uh, it does clarify the salary basis test for our highly compensated employees and shows the importance of applying that overtime exemption criteria properly. If you don't, it could cost you. But if you want to pay your employees through those non-traditional methods, you now have guidance on how it should be structured. Those are my tips. What about yours, Jules? Okay, so mine are going back to Mallory, the personal jurisdiction case. Again, not much you can do about it. Just be aware that it opens up the possibility that your company could be sued in other locations that you wouldn't typically think they could be. Regarding religious accommodations, Uh, To deny a religious accommodation, you have to show a substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of your particular business. So that's the key phrase. So that means like if you are manufacturing widgets, you have to show that it would impact your ability to make as many widgets that you had previously made. So that's an example. So keep that in mind. With 303 Creative, again, the basic premise is that if you are involved in providing creative expression, you may be able to deny services to groups that go against your personal beliefs. But one of the possible implications, and I don't have an answer for this, but one of the things that it made me think of is, let's say you run a marketing company and you have an employee who creates websites for clients. And that employee disagrees with that particular client's beliefs. What are your obligations to that employee versus what are your obligations to that client? And like I said, I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's a a really, right? I think it's a really interesting (laughs) conundrum, which also is a wine, by the way, and not a bad one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Always thinking, always Always thinking. thinking. I love it. Uh, But... I do think this could have potential trickle-down ramifications. So uh, just keep in mind 
all of those things. And then the strike case, which was Glacier Northwest v. International Brotherhood of Teamsters. The, the good news for employers is that you have more rights than you probably had before as to when a strike can happen and when it can't. So if you are preparing for a strike or there's rumors of a strike about to happen and you're in the middle of a project or you're in the middle of work, you might be able to stop that. So that's um, good news for employers to keep in mind. So to summarize this entire episode, <laughs> the Supreme Court has basically just muddied the waters and made things more confusing than ever. So clear as mud. Clear right? as mud. Yes, clear as mud. Sometimes they decided on behalf of the employers. Sometimes they did not. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, as the Sherm article says. So you need to keep track of these decisions and how the lower courts are going to interpret them, especially in your particular state or your particular jurisdiction, uh, so that you can kind of adapt your practices, policies, and procedures to make sure that you're not running afoul of what the Supreme Court is now setting as precedent. Any last words from you, Trish? Wow. No, I think you said it so beautifully. I just want to. Yeah. All right. Well, Everything then we'll get she back. said with an exclamation point. Yeah. Well, then we'll get back to our W-I-N-E and close out this episode since you're all maybe asleep or drunk at this point. So, uh, uh, Trish, how's your wine? Delicious as always. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I think it did make it uh, easier to get through these these cases. (laughs) 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 Truth. I will say that uh, this box wine is it definitely grows on you. So, Mm. again, me not being a fan of boxed wine. When I initially had a couple sips, I was like, yeah, it's okay." But uh, as I've been sipping on it, it, it really is quite nice. It's very pleasant very doable (laughs) for the the uh, glass of wine every night while you, you know, just the one, just the one. Just the one. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for sticking with us through this episode. We hope that you at least appreciate all the information. I'm not going to say it was necessarily enjoyable. They can't Uh, all be enjoyable. Sometimes we have to just learn. (laughs) Right, right. But it is important. So uh, we hope we gave you some guidance. Again, we always welcome you to reach out with comments, questions, future topics, or wine recommendations. Oh, please. Uh, Yes, please. So um, with that, we will sign off. And uh, please subscribe to Wine with HR wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. Yay! (laughs) Cheers! Cheers! We'll see you next time with more legal updates. So bring a bottle.